Welcome to the Modern Intimacy Podcast, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, education, how-tos, and those private things we need to talk about more publicly with no restrictions. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex addiction therapist, I know that mental health is directly tied to the quality of our relationships and our sex lives. I am passionate in my desire to smash stigmas about both and shine a light on relationship and societal issues that may be negatively affecting us. During this podcast, I will also give you practical answers and insights to questions you're asking about or have been hoping to solve. We should all have fulfilled, happy lives, erasing shame and stigmas and building healthy connections. Let's do that by getting curious together. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. I am so, so, so excited today to have with me two incredible guests. Both are researchers at the University of South Florida who study the process of objectification. Dr. Jamie Goldenberg and Roxanne Felig have been studying objectification and looking at how it continues into later life and Uh, the mechanisms that perpetuate objectification when really it's a developmental stage that we should matriculate through pretty early in our childhood. So Dr. Jamie and Roxanne, I'm so grateful to have you both here. I would love for you to introduce yourselves and maybe if you could say a little bit about how you got into this field studying objectification. I'm Jamie Goldenberg and I have been studying objectification for a number of years and come from it from a perspective that I think we're going to get to, which is terror management theory. So I originally um, kind of approached it from more of an existential standpoint, or that was kind of my framework for understanding um, kind of human motivation. And then it sort of evolved into objectification through, actually through a friendship with another researcher, Tommy Ann Roberts, who developed objectification theory. And we kind of merged perspectives. And then since then, it's sort of um, kind of gotten a little bit away from the existential perspective. And I've worked with um, a number of graduate students, including Roxanne, and we've kind of... um, you know, been exploring objectification more fully, kind of morphing away from this existential framework, which I started with. What what, what kind of come, I think we'll have kind of a circular approach to um, kind of coming back to the terror management perspective. I um, am a graduate student in Jamie's lab. This is my fifth year. Um, So I kind of stumbled into the objectification research, like, not by chance, but it wasn't something that I like set out thinking I, I want to study objectification. I knew I was interested broadly in kind of gender dynamics and feminist approaches to science and psychology and um, applied to work with Jamie at USF and was really, really interested in the work that she was doing at the time. Um, when I applied, she sent me a manuscript in preparation um, about objectification of um of women was it in a domestic violence context too or no I can't remember that was one of the original papers that you worked on I think yeah. it may have been the 
appearance versus sexual. Yeah, yeah they were looking at how uh, women can be objectified sexually or more in kind of like a mechanistic way. And in the paper, they showed participants pictures of like a porn star who is very, you know, sexualized um, and objectified based on her sexual attributes or a fashion model who's also objectified, but in a less sexual way. And um, my grandma was a, a sex worker. She was a porn star. And so I've always kind of grown up like thinking about that dynamic. And when I read the paper, I was like, this is so interesting. And I feel like it would be so cool to like work in a lab where we're like looking at perceptions of sex workers or women who self-sexualize and how that ties into objectification. And so it was kind of like a natural fit where I was like, wow, like this is so fun. And I'm like interested in this and it has relevance to my upbringing. I think this is what I want to pursue. Amazing. So when you think about objectification, how how do you define that today based on all of the different understandings that you have and, and the studies that you've been conducting? What's your quick and dirty definition? It's kind of complicated. I feel like we, we have all these different working definitions that mm-hmm. kind of fit different contexts. I would say like at its core, it's valuing someone or valuing valuing yourself for your appearance um, and your body over who you are as a person. Jamie, do you have another definition? No, I think, I think that like the, the body encompasses it. And what we've, um, kind of stumbled upon is it's, it's, as Roxanne said, it's not that simple and the body can be valued in different ways. It can be valued for its kind of sexual attributes or, for its beauty, which can be devoid of kind of anything um, animalistic or kind of sexual and becomes more of a literal object. And I think that's um, kind of one of the unique contributions that we've made in our lab is really focusing on objectification in a very literal manner. I mean, we talk about objectification, we say, oh, treating somebody as an object, but what we've been showing is that it actually, you know, means perceiving a woman or a woman perceiving herself as, you know, an inhuman object. Thing. Yeah, just thing. a thing. Yeah, a, literal thing, thing. a thing instead of a being, right? Yeah. A vehicle for some other cause instead of a whole human is kind of how I think about it. It's a reduction of someone's existence, their, their psychological existence, their spirit, their persona, their integrated self into just a series of parts that serve a purpose for someone else. And those purposes can be really varied. When we are infants, we do go through a phase where we see people as objects or part objects, right? And, and that's a necessary stage of development because it is really designed to help us learn to differentiate who we are and who other people are. And so our very young, unsophisticated brains see people as good or bad. They bring me food, they change my diaper, or they don't. And I'm very frustrated by that. So they're bad. And then eventually, as we continue to mature, we start to integrate that the people around us have these good and bad aspects, satisfying or frustrating aspects to who they are and what they do for us. And as we continue to mature, we really start to see other people as whole human beings, 
comprised of their own subjective experience, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to the way that women are perceived, there seems to be a pretty big disconnect about the integration of their whole humanity into personhood. So can we talk a little bit about the evolution, Um, Jamie, from your um, idea about this being related to existential fears into terror management theory? Yeah, that's that's interesting. We haven't really kind of approached it from a developmental perspective, but it's interesting to think about um, kind of to give you a little bit of background of the perspective that I came to objectification with. It was based on a theory called terror management theory, which starts with the recognition that as human beings, we're in a kind of unique existential situation in that we share with other you know, other animals, instincts aimed at survival, but yet we are unique in that we are smart enough and self-aware enough to understand that inevitably we won't survive. And this is kind of a mindset that we come to the world with. Um, And this affects a lot of things and it does, you know, it affects developmentally um, the way children perceive the world and attach to their to their parents um, for protection and safety. Um, in our research, we've shown um, kind of, you know, terror management shows that people have a need to believe that what they believe, you know, whatever worldview they subscribe to is absolutely valid and are threatened by other people. So it plays a role in prejudice and it also plays a role in the need for self-esteem because people need to feel like they're living up to whatever belief system they subscribe to, that they're they're valuable contributors to that. What Where it comes to um, relate to objectification and to sex in the body is some of the early research that I did was looking at the idea that, you know, to the extent that we want to feel safe and not mortal, uh, anything that reminds us of our physicality and our connection to other creatures is on, you know, in some ways threatening because physical creatures die. And so this kind of creates um, kind of a ambivalence when it comes to sex and the body and when it comes to women's bodies, kind of our perspective has been that one of the reason that reasons that women are objectified and turned into literal objects is because, is because it separates them from their physical, their creatureliness. And so this mm-hmm. is sort of a framework for understanding objectification. Um, and they're, and they're- yeah. Yeah, their their creatureliness. Can we break that down a little bit for folks who aren't familiar with that concept? Creatureliness is just physicality. It's actually Ernest Becker, who a lot of the term management theory is is um, derived from his writings and the denial of death talked about it. And it's just a recognition that we are physical creatures and our bodies do a lot of things that we spend a lot of energy pretending. They don't, you know, <laughs> eat with a fork and knife and chopsticks. And we keep our kind of our bathroom behavior very, you know, discreet. <laughs> and we transform our bodies from the ways that they would naturally appear and smell and <laughs> do by turning them, you know, distancing them from their creatureliness, their 
their physicality, their association with other animals. And women's bodies are inherently a bit more creaturely than men's given our role in reproduction. So we menstruate. Um, if we get pregnant, we, you know, maybe breastfeed. Um, so there are these aspects of women's bodies that require more sanitizing, right, than than men's. And so we should serve more of a reminder of that creatureliness. I think that's a really important piece to hold on to, because when we think about mortality and we think about menstruation and the fact that so much of what happens from a reproductive health perspective happens inside the body, outside of our visual experience but then we what we see is blood of menstruation and that can feel really scary when we're thinking existentially and from a mortality perspective and powerful even right because menstruation happens on a regular basis um but why aren't these creatures seemingly impacted you know by what would be considered um, a fatal outcome for other animals with the sight of blood. I bring that up because I think it really creates a lot of fear when you see a creature bleeding and you Mm -hmm. don't understand why it's happening because everything is happening internally outside of the output of blood. And so I think this really has the potential to seep into the psyche of uh, people of all genders and create a lot of fear or, um, concern. And if I'm understanding you both right, this is part of why women's bodies in particular are targeted for objectification because there's perhaps mystery around all of that. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, is a lot of stigma associated with menstruation. So um, kind of, we look at it sort of on the flip side. So on one hand, women are kind of put down and, 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 feared and there's a disgust reaction to the things that their body does. And then on the other hand, they're kind of stripped from their association with these creaturely behaviors by being put on a pedestal in a way um, and considered an object of, of beauty. So and purity. And it's kind of two mm-hmm. sides, it's it's you know two sides of the same coin and that they kind of come from again that association with 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 creatureliness. I think it fits in really nicely with ambivalent sexism, which we've yeah. talked about before, right? These hostile yeah. perceptions of women kind of map onto viewing women in a very animalistic way. Um, and then more kind of seemingly positive, benevolent perceptions of women that map onto needing to objectify them to cope with the fact that we are women, I guess. Right. But, but objectify them in a very desexualized way. Right. right. It, it speaks to yeah. this bifurcation of women into respectable and protectable mm-hmm. versus discardable and destructible. Right. Camps. Which maps on to the animalistic kind of dehumanization versus mechanistic or sexual objectification versus this more literal objectification. Interesting. So can we break down terror management theory a little bit and talk about what that really means? What that means is that as human beings, we have a need to manage the terror associated with the awareness of our mortality and that this is kind of an inherent part of the human condition. And we can explain a lot of behaviors kind of from this general uh, perspective. 
and, um, you know, again, applying it to objectification and attitudes towards women's bodies, what we would, uh, what we would predict and what we have empirical evidence showing is that when people are reminded of their mortality. So the idea is that it's there, it's like, you know, always kind of under the surface, but in our experimental research, we can kind of poke at this and, and prime it and we can see what it does. And this shows us that this is kind of an underlying cause of these, um, you know, these behaviors such as objectification of women's bodies and also kind of, um, ambivalence towards sex and and the body and not just objectification of other women but also self-objectifying so it's kind of a i guess you could call it like a coping mechanism right to to cope with the fear of death women take a more literal view of their own body um to quell that existential threat right what does what might that sound like in the mind of a woman what might that sound like jamie well it's i I think you know, one of the things that we've been um, really focusing on more recently is this kind of disconnect from the the, the body, the body sensations, yeah. um, the body's behaviors, and so it probably and you know there there is there is kind of a psychoanalytic or psychodynamic um, root of terror management theory as well. And so what it sounds like is maybe like Freud's kind of repression a bit in that these kind of things are like, no, 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 (laughs) like, you know, denial of the body's natural ability to experience um, pleasure and Mm -hmm. cold and sensations. And um, me, Roxanne, you want to talk about this? the cold study or the- yeah yeah well like to be clear i don't think like when we talk about this it's not like a conscious right like i'm going to self-objectify but it might look like a lot of different behaviors like i i could imagine perhaps like engaging in some appearance maintenance behaviors might be a response um mm-hmm. to this right like maybe shaving your legs or wanting to go and get your legs waxed or something that kind of reminds you that you're just a beautiful object that can be taken care of and protected and not die. Um, but not hairy like animals. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not, not be an animal. Um, but yeah, we did a study, um, a couple years ago now, 2020, right before COVID hit, um, not linking it to terror management theory, but definitely applicable to like how, what this literal self-objectification might manifest as. So, um, one consequence of self-objectifying and kind of treating the self as a, as an object is actually, you know, becoming distanced from bodily sensation. So objects can't feel, um, objects don't get hungry objects, you know, they're just things. They're not people. So we were curious to test how that manifests in kind of a naturalistic setting. Um, and so I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the Cardi B quote, a hoe never gets cold. Um, <laughs> but uh, when I came to USF, Jamie and a couple of other grad students heard, had already been discussing kind of testing that quote kind of, uh, or applying objectification theory to understand what it means for a hoe to not get cold. 
Is it that women, um, you know, value their appearance when they're going out and wear skimpy outfits, um, even though it's cold and they just deal with cold weather? Or might women actually become like distanced from their bodily sensation and value their appearance and how they look at the expense of being able to recognize body cues? And so we went out um, on cold nights by Florida standard. Um, it was in the 40s, which I feel is real cold for uh, for Tampa. But we went out and we surveyed like 250 women or so um, who were, you know, waiting in line at bars and nightclubs. And we gave them like a standard measure of self-objectification, asks things like, you know, I think about how I look more than how I feel. So super face valid. Um we took photos of their outfits to code for how much skin they had exposed. And we asked them how cold they felt. And typically if it's cold, if you have <laughs> more skin exposed, you should feel cold. Um, but what we predicted was that self-objectification might disrupt that process. So if you're really focused on yourself as a thing, uh, you might not recognize feeling cold when you should. And so we found that we found that um, for women who were higher in self-objectification, there was no relationship between their skin exposure and how cold they felt. But for women who were lower in self-objectification, there was a very intuitive relationship where having more skin exposed was related to feeling colder. So it might look like, uh, you know, just not being in touch with body cues, not recognizing feeling cold, not recognizing feeling hungry. Um, maybe not recognizing being inebriated, all sorts of just distancing from body sensation. Yeah, that is so fascinating. So the more that women objectified themselves and saw themselves as inanimate objects, the co the less cold they felt and the less aware they were of their bodily sensations in that moment. Yeah, I don't know if we necessarily found that it was that they didn't feel cold, but they're their perception of how cold they felt was not related to how much skin they had exposed, right? I so they see. were relying on other external cues maybe mm -hmm. um, rather than, you know, what they should be relying on, which is their body. So if I'm hearing you right, there's a bit of a dissociation that happens between mind and body for women with higher levels of self-objectification. Exactly. Correct. Yeah, that tracks, that tracks. I work with so many women um, who in sexual situations have a difficult time staying embodied mm -hmm. and have a difficult time feeling the sensations of pleasure or pain. In fact, yeah. they report numbness and yeah. many of them have had experiences of sexual trauma. And so there's, of course, the feeling of being objectified that comes with being sexually violated. And so that's an interesting link around that dissociation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, weren't weren't you trying to do some some research on that? Yeah, with, with um, Caitlin's, the well, actually, I've had a number of students propose um, that hypothesis. It's just been, it's, it, as you can imagine, it's a harder um, study to do in a laboratory or out on the, <laughs> the mm -hmm. streets. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have found associations between um, self-objectification and reports of the ability to feel pleasure with one's partner. Also related to what spectatoring, is that what it's called? Right. Kind of leaving, yeah. leaving your body a bit to 
to because you're hyper focused on how you're looking to your partner and how you're looking in a position or you know if your lingerie looks nice on you it's just this taking this third person perspective at the expense of really being in your body and being able to recognize your body sensations and sometimes that's rooted in anxiety of course around body image and partner satisfaction and relational security and i i'm hearing that maybe sometimes that's also related to this tendency to self objectify and create a sense of safety because again if unconsciously someone can see themselves as an object that is good enough then they might feel safe enough to be a part of whatever experience they're in possibly well i th- i think you're is that a leap well, I think you're, but you're, I think you're tapping into something that we've been talking a lot about, and that's kind of this double-edged sword of objective, yeah. self-objectification, and that there is, you know, a clear downside um, in this kind of disconnect and ability to experience pleasure. Um, but there are, there is also an upside, and not not just kind of the the, you know, on an obvious or semi-obvious level, focusing on your appearance has benefits because there are tangible social and economic rewards associated with looking a certain way, but also, you know, the ability to go out and wear (laughs) your cute outfit and not be cold, that also has some kind of power potentially in it. And this is something that Roxanne and I have been um, exploring more recently, and this is how how self objectification can the conditions under where it under which it's not harmful, and that if if a woman kind of takes ownership for these decisions, then perhaps it doesn't have a lot of the the negative consequences. And we consequences such as more bodily shame and anxiety, and um, and you know body disassociations. So it's something that that we have been really kind of focused on and just starting to um, delve into more. I really appreciate you bringing that up. I think in looking at how objectification has served as a protective function is a really important aspect of helping people of all genders and especially women who self-objectify wrestle with shame that might come up when they learn that that's part of what they've been doing because there is you know so much motivation to not be objectified so i think when a lot of women uh, understand how they might have done that to themselves it can really elicit a lot of dissonance and a lot of fear and a lot of shame and that shame can get in the way of them actually addressing how they can fully integrate or re-embody yeah, and that's exactly what we've what we've been looking at kind of through a lens of self-determination theory, which is all about integration of of the mm-hmm. self, right? And so if things that begin as externally motivated, you know, um as a function of the male gaze and media and TikTok telling us what, you know, kind of lip filler we need or whatever, if something begins as externally motivated but can become integrated into one's actual self, it should not have these negative outcomes. It should really feel self-driven and self-motivated and like a key component of the self. 
So intrinsically, it feels much more empowered when somebody Mm -hmm. says, I'm doing this for reasons that are beneficial for me, and they feel really aligned with who I am and how I live and the values that I maintain. How do you recommend women balance that internal empowerment that they experience and intrinsic motivation with external shame or ridicule or assumptions and projection that get levied on them? (laughs) <laughs> what a conundrum great yeah, question I, th- I think it's like a you know kind of a delicate dance of of mm. taking a little bit of each because yeah. there are again there are benefits associated with um objectification and there are also mm-hmm. consequences but by being more self-determined, make, you know, taking more ownership of the the behaviors you do decide to engage in, this should reduce the negative consequences such as shame. And we do have actually some evidence for this and some recent studies that we haven't written up yet because we're just beginning this line of research. Yeah. And I, I think not only taking ownership over the choices that you are making, but really examining where the source of pressure to engage in these behaviors from the beginning come from? Is it from a partner? Is it from the media? Is it because it brings you joy and you feel better about yourself? You know, what is pushing you to engage in whatever behavior it is? But there is, you know, not only positive and negative consequences of engaging in objectification, but also in actively choosing to kind of not uphold objectifying behaviors, right? So, I'm sure you've seen content of mine about like not shaving. And that's definitely a super internally motivated choice. Like I hate shaving. I always have allergic reactions to razors and to shaving creams. I got a chemical burn like last summer. It was terrible. But then, you know, if I don't shave, then I'm met with constant backlash from men on the internet and in real life asking me why I don't shave. And it's frustrating. And so then Maybe I should just shave so that I don't have to deal with this annoyance. Mm -hmm. So it's really a balance of like, you know, where do I want the shame to come from, I guess? Oh, that's such a great point. I think the the really important thing to consider is, do you feel bad about yourself because of your choices versus are other people dumping their shame in your lap? At which point you can choose to pick that up and hold on to it or not you know, theoretically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder how, if we can talk a little bit about how can folks begin to challenge objectification? So um, women, men, non-binary folks, how does this, how does integration start to happen in your opinion? And how do they reconcile that with the existential terror of our mortality? Um, I feel like Roxanne's you know, just kind of tapped into that a bit about making the decisions about the behaviors that you engage in. Um, But from a a terror management perspective, kind of any behavior can take on symbolic value. So like, you know, at a a more surface level, there are some things that are, are clearly creaturely, such as not shaving, a woman not shaving her legs, that has an association with 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 other animals and kind of hairiness that that <laughs> that at a, like an intrinsic level could be um, considered creaturely, but 
at the same time, time management theory is all about symbolic meaning given to anything. Like we can take any behavior and give it symbolic significance. And so something, I don't know, I'm going to think like some, some, trying to think of an example of something that would be. Well, my not shaving could be a symbol of my feminist activism that is boosts my self-esteem and gives me meaning as a person. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, you know, even like I just did a hot yoga class this morning and I was sweating profusely and, and that's like, you know, really (laughs) again, sort of creaturely, but not because of the meaning we ascribe to it. And so I think it's sort of a, a, a um, kind of a curating of the different behaviors and giving meaning to something that um, has a way of giving it, you know, would distance it from any association with mortality because it has symbolic value. But in some instances, what some of other research from our lab has shown is that really it's um, helpful to to have these reminders of mortality, right? So Emily's research on literal objectification in terms of like health behaviors, where reminders of death and being able to literally objectify the self allow women to kind of engage in health monitoring behaviors, like giving themselves breast self exams that they otherwise might not feel comfortable mm-hmm. engaging in. So I don't want to speak too much on that because it's not really my research, Jamie, you might know, know that better, but just the fact that maybe sometimes we should yeah, like latch on to this existential fear and leverage it to, to help ourselves. It's interesting. What I'm taking away from this conversation about integration is this idea that on some level, we've really got to challenge ourselves um, around the overcoupling of self-worth and creatureliness and parts, right? Objects. And so I think what I'm hearing you say is that there's really an opportunity to think more about what drives our motivation as opposed to what it means about us. And that's an important distinction that we don't often talk that much about in terms of uh, social currency and power. I mean, it comes up in, in implicitly in a lot of the ways that we make assumptions about ourselves and people and what we have access to in the world. But I think if I'm hearing you right, there's really a, there's an opportunity to think about just how do we value ourselves as whole human beings? And when that can drive the behavior and that respect for our whole selves drives behavior, then there's a lot more room for integration. Yeah, I would say, yeah. There's so much motivation in the ways that men are conditioned to bond over objectification of women that I think they have a, a more difficult time understanding the benefits on why they should challenge that. Yeah, I, I think part of male socialization is learning to objectify, right? That's part of, I, I'm in the midst of my dissertation proposal and I have a whole section on kind of socialization and and power dynamics and how there's a clear gender hierarchy. And one way to maintain that hierarchy is by objectifying women. Um, It's a tool to to keep women in a place of subordination. And so I think there's so much to like unpack. Like I feel like if men need to, if men can understand why objectification is harmful to women and why um, 
why they should kind of avoid relying on it that also ties into a need to like broadly understand patriarchal like values and sexism and like it's all interconnected um and I don't know how to target like objectification on its own without tapping into all of that well if I understand terror management theory correctly one thing that's coming up for me is this idea that if men are able to objectify women consistently and they they maintain that part of their unconscious motivation is to elevate themselves in sort of an idea of immortality. And so how does it work then with men objectifying themselves? Do they do that sexually, financially, physically in other ways? I mean, how does this show up in terms of their own intrinsic uh, objectification? Yeah, it's funny. We really have not done a lot of research on that. Um, if we think about our definition of objectification and like kind of the more symbolic, literal um, objects and as a um, kind of a yardstick of living up to cultural standards. And, and so for women, it's about appearance. And for men, it can be about well, using the body in other ways, such as athleticism, or mm-hmm. it can be separated that's that's where it gets slippery. Like, so what is not objectification? If can it be separated from the body completely and be something like, can you objectify a man for his wallet? Um, but we, from a you know a terror management perspective, it makes sense that it works plays out in men. But as you know, the the kind of the framework that Roxanne added about women's bodies and women's role in reproduction suggests that it's more inherent, a more inherent response to women's bodies. So, you know, we can, we can translate it into men's experiences, but it's a little, it's kind of a step farther from the existential origins. Um, In terms of kind of getting men to recognize the harm associated with objectifying women um, I think, you know, Roxanne laid out the kind of the sociocultural perspective and understanding of patriarchy, also from an existential perspective, understanding that it's a defense, right? So if men's objectification of women is a terror management defense, then perhaps kind of getting at a little bit more self-awareness and kind of introducing this idea could maybe alleviate some of the pressure because these kind of psychodynamic you know, de- defenses don't work the same way when we're aware of them. Mm-hmm. So that might be kind of one approach. Um, another approach with term management is that these defenses are kind of interchangeable. So kind of doing something else that's more, um, that's less destructive as a way to have them have men defend against their mortality um, mm-hmm. could be another approach. But and I'm thinking about Viktor Frankl a bit and uh, his infamous book, Man's Search for Meaning, obviously not limited to the idea of men and their construction of meaning for a, a lifelong motivation strategy. But certainly, I think for a lot of men, there is meaning constructed around taking care of the objects, taking care of the women and children in their lives. And I think that when when I'm working with a lot of men who start to recognize that this 
has served some protective functions for them, but also is getting in the way of them having meaningful relationships or feeling valued and cared for as men outside of their ability to provide, then they're really a lot more open to start constructing a life that's filled with other kinds of meaning and purpose. So they don't need to rest on this identity that's constructed over the idea of taking care of these other people slash objects, right? Is there mm-hmm. sometimes psychologically observed? Yeah, it's actually, this could maybe be a whole other line of research, but I'm thinking now about like literal objectification. And if it, I mean, I, I know that research shows men obviously do self-objectify and it really mm-hmm. to like drive for muscularity and um, like working out and things like that, that manifest differently than women. Um, and I'm wondering if kind of the um, the cultural emphasis put on men to like not show emotion is almost a literal objectification mm-hmm. that they engage in mm-hmm. and what kind of implications that might have for, you know, for relationship dynamics and relationship quality. If you over time have to distance from your emotions, do you actually kind of lose touch with them and what kind mm-hmm. of implications does that have? Yeah, there's been a lot of research on normative male alexithymia, which really is a function of gender socialization where men have to consistently be reminded to not feel mm-hmm. certain feelings and not mm-hmm. express certain feelings. And to your point, they do become dissociated and disconnected from their emotional experience outside of certain socially sanctioned emotions like anger or pride. Um, So when men feel other emotions like shame or fear, anything that might position them as vulnerable in their minds or more dimensional, i.e. like the construct of women, that's not allowed. And so they do dissociate and disconnect themselves. And it's so interesting to hear you connect that to the idea of self-objectification because it would really strip Mm -hmm. them of their human experience and render their bodies just these parts that are meant for production. Right. That's kind of how I see the objectification of men and muscularity and strength and power is all about production and the ways that they are objectified to um, produce, 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 and, and that's really, I think, um, a way that maybe men might start to look at how have they been conditioned to see themselves as these creatures of production, right? And can that be a starting point for integrating a little bit more humanity into their own experience of themselves? Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast today and talking about objectification and its motivations. Um, For folks who want to sample your research and understand a little bit more about what you're doing, how can they contact you? How can they find your work? Uh, We have, we both have ResearchGate accounts. Um, I put all of my work up there. I don't know if all of Jamie's is available, but they can email us too. And I have a faculty webpage that has a nice selection of articles that are available to just click on. So for people listening, you can check out all of their research in um, the show notes, which will be on our website, modernintimacy.com slash podcast. And you can just find this episode. All right. Thank you both. And thank you everyone for listening. Uh, We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and at The Modern Intimacy. On TikTok, check me out at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and on Twitter at Kate Balistrieri. 
Everyone has questions about mental health, sex, and relationships. Send yours to me via DM on Instagram or email them to questions at modernintimacy.com and I'll answer some at the end of each episode. Visit the website modernintimacy.com to schedule a consultation with a member of our team or to sign up for our newsletter. Let's meet back here next week. New episodes air every Tuesday. Reminder, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health services. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.